Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior Jesus the Christ. Amen. So first, as we, as we think about things today, I just want to ask you this question. And I want you to think about it and then maybe share it with somebody close to you. And that is, what has priority in your life? What has priority? What has the place of priority? I know that priority is first place. So in our culture today, where we are pushed so hard to perform so many things to try and get the full life by doing everything we could possibly do, that now we've taken that word that is first and made priorities. Like we can actually have 12 first things. That's odd. Shouldn't that come across odd? Okay. Priority is what's the one most important thing? Think about that and then share that with a neighbor. back for a minute. As you think about what it takes place as priority, listen to what it says in Matthew chapter 5. So the beginning of Matthew 5, again, has that, um, the Beatitudes, which is more of a declaration of who you are in Christ, okay, pure in heart, poor in spirit, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, those who are mourning, okay, all those things are true of who we are in Christ, Right? Then we move into verses 20 or 13 through 20. And in there we have, you are salt, you are light, live this new way. Okay, Jesus has done that for you. Okay, now we go to verses 21 through 37. But I'm just going to give you the first five verses, basically. Listen to these. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and then remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. I believe what's at the very center, what's the priority that Jesus is sharing with us here is Relationships. Relationship with God, so we don't have to fear judgment. Relationship with one another. How do we speak about, how do we speak to our brothers and sisters? Angry, insulting, you fool. Okay, now nobody uses that language anymore. We just use the current modern day word for that, right? Which is actually the Greek word, okay? We don't call them amoros. We call him a moron, right? Okay? Ever use that language? Or you fool like that? You're just a mo- Okay? If you listen to what it said, the danger of doing that kind of stuff, because God cares so much about our relationships, is that there can be judgment for that. There will be judgment for that. 
And I want to say it this way. Jesus died for that. Those words that so flippantly and easily come off of our tongues, the attitude of hatred that so easily comes to live within our hearts, judgment was for that. And Jesus died for that. Reconciliation. As we think about this, angry at the brother, insulting, all of that, says there's a need to reconcile with our brothers and sisters before we come to offer our gift at the altar. I wasn't planning on saying this first, but I just can't seem to get it out of my head. Okay? I wonder if we'd ever meet budget if we had to reconcile with our brothers and sisters before we gave our gifts to God. Will we ever meet our budget? Crap, pastor, shut up and go home. Right? <laughs> it's really important. Yes, are we called to be good stewards and managers of all that God gives us? Yes. But look around the room. These are God's precious children that we choose to see as less than that far too often. And those people in our families and those other people, our brothers and sisters in Christ, you know, like the scum of the earth, let me think about them once in a while. So to get us started, I've got three little stories I'd like to read to you. I'll try and get you out of here before tomorrow. <laughs> From Philip Yancey, Grace Moments, he says this, I will never forget one encounter with art's wondrous power, so the gift of art. I was visiting Rome, and the first day I rose well before dawn and took a bus to the Tiber River just outside Vatican City. I stood on the bridge colonnaded with Bernini's angels and watched the sun rise slowly, quietly, I walked the few blocks to St. Peter's. I strolled its vast spaces at a time so silent that each of my steps echoed off its graceful walls. Except for a few faithful nuns kneeling in prayer, I was alone. After a while, I climbed stairs to the roof where I could examine the statues and look, statues and look out over the plaza. I saw a long line snaking outside in the plaza. They were not tourists, rather a choir of 200 strong bust in from Germany. As they filed in, I stood on the balcony of the dome designed by Michelangelo. Beneath me, the choir formed a large circle under the dome and began to sing a cappella. Some of the words were in Latin, some were in German. It did not matter. Inside that magnificent sheltering dome with its perfect acoustics, I was virtually suspended in their music. I had the feeling that if I lifted my arms, the medium itself would support me. Michelangelo, arguably the greatest artist who has ever lived, later confessed that his work had crowded out his own faith. As his life drew to a close, he penned these lines. So now, from this mad passion which made me take art for an idol and a king, I have learnt the burden of error that it bore and what misfortune springs from man's desire. The world's frivolities have robbed me of the time that I was given for reflecting upon God. Perhaps Michelangelo and others like him have through their labors helped turn us from the world's frivolities and given us time for such reflection. 
for this one moment inside St. Peter's, I had inhabited a glorious space, not on earth, a moment of time, not in time. Art had done its work. Why in the world would I read that to you? Because I believe that when you and I are so pushed and so bombarded about the next assignment we have to get done, the next thing I have to get done on my list of chores, the next work I have to do, the next place I have to be, you know what we oftentimes don't give ourselves? Time. Time to reflect. And when I have time to reflect, I get on my time-wasting devices to waste the time because I sure don't want to reflect. Right? It's too blasted scary to reflect, Pastor. What are you asking me to do? I'm actually going to ask you to reflect on a piece of art. Now, some of you may not be able to see this from where you are. Don't worry. I'll come close. The painting is titled The Prodigal. It's one of the best stories in all of Scripture about reconciliation. We'd like you to look at it. Pick out a point. Think about the prodigal son story. Think about the father. And what that father did. Do you think the son was angry with the father? Do you think the son was disobedient towards the father? Do you think the son was disrespectful of the father? Do you think the, fu- the son spoke any words which would have caused the father to not want to spend time with him? Anything which would have ruined that relationship. And I'd like to keep going around, but Roberto always surprises me and found the piece of art and put it on the screen. So now you can see it there. That's pretty awesome. As you look at that piece of art, I want you to think about something. Art has done its work. We can look upon this and we can see that our God, our Heavenly Father, is gracious. Because He's come to where we are. So you know what? He's gracious so we don't have to prove ourselves anymore. We don't have to say... Father, I've come back and I'll be your servant. I'll do what needs to be done to work my way back into your family. No, he puts a ring on his finger, a robe on his his body, sandals on his feet. He kills the fattened calf for him and he says, you're back, my son. And he says that to each of us, reconciled, not because we've earned it, not because we've done all this great changing, but because he's looking for us to reconcile. Our God is good. 
so we don't have to look elsewhere. Our God is glorious, so we don't have to fear what the older brother is going to say. We don't have to fear all these other things, but we can just trust our glorious, good, gracious, and great God who's in charge of everything. I have a question for you. You know, I do. I do every week. Will you take time today? Will you take time this week to reflect on what God has done for you in Jesus? How he has reconciled you to the Father so that now you might be able to hear what he says and reconcile with those who've sinned against you. Now, in order to think about that, I'd like to read something else to you. First, I want to read to you from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, probably one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. It says this, For Christ's love compels us, as you saw in that picture just a little bit ago, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way. We do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Would you please repeat after me? I am reconciled to God through Christ. Quick question, do you believe that? Do you believe that the same God who reconciled you to himself in the work of Jesus on the cross is the same God who says, I've got meaningful work for you to do. It's not easy work. We have to get over ourselves. And I really struggle getting over myself. So to help me with that, I have a little book from the Arbinger Institute. I've read out of it to you before. It's called The Anatomy of Peace. And you may have heard this story before. And if you have, great, you can remember it. If you haven't, please listen along. Lou had grown up in Athens, New York, a picturesque town located on the Hudson River, 120 miles north of Manhattan and 30 miles south of Albany. His father was an apple farmer who worked around the clock seven days a week to eke out a meager living. They lived in a Civil War era, white, clapboard farmhouse that sat only 50 yards off the west bank of the Hudson. Their farm was a rather modest 10 acres, but it was the prettiest parcel in Greene County, occupying a peninsula that jutted out into the Hudson. From the top floor of the farmhouse, one could see the Catskill Mountains rising above the trees to the west. The setting was so beautiful that Lou's father could never bring himself to leave, even though he could have run a far grander operation <coughs> elsewhere. Through Lou's youth, the family had owned only one vehicle, a red 1942 farm truck with a matching red four-foot-tall wooden, wooden bay on the flatbed. 
The, the truck rattled and coughed like a 90-year-old chain smoker. Lou grew up thinking that the shoulder of the road was merely a second lane, as his father nearly always hugged the grasses that lined the streets in order to let other vehicles pass. It was no small thing then when the Herberts purchased a new car. Lou was 16 at the time, and he was eager to show the car to his friends in town. The day after his father bought it home, Lou asked if he could take it for some errands, sensing his son's excitement. Lou's father readily agreed. Lou ran out to the driveway and started it up. The low hum of the engine exhilarated him, and he stroked the dash in anticipation. Just then he remembered he had left his wallet in the house and ran in to get it. When he raced back out to his horror, the car had vanished. Lou remembered his feeling of panic and then the awful thought that the car might have rolled down the slope of the approach and spilled off the driveway and into the Hudson. Didn't I put it back in park? Lou had screamed in his mind as he ran down the drive. Didn't I set the brake? When the lane, where the lane turned, sure enough, fresh tire tracks headed down the hill toward the river. Lou sprinted to the edge of the bluff and looked some 20 feet down. There, looking back at him, were the headlights of his father's car. He stood frozen as the water slowly sucked the car under the surface and out of sight. Lou remembered walking numbly up to the house, wondering how he could break the news to his father. He entered the farmhouse and saw his father facing away from him in his favorite wing-back chair. He was reading the newspaper. For a moment, Lou considered quietly exiting, and his mind raced with thoughts of running away. <laughs> Forget something else, his father had asked without turning around? No, Lou had responded, feeling cornered. There was no avoiding it now, as his father knew he was in the house. There was nowhere to hide. Dad, he said, his voice breaking. I, he couldn't go on. I, he gasped for air and the courage to tell what happened. Dad, I, the car, he stammered as his chest heaved between words. I think I must have forgotten to set the brake, he blurted. It's in the river, Dad. The car's in the river. I'm so sorry, he said, bursting into sobs. I'm so sorry. What happened next seared itself so deeply into Lou's memory, he was sure that, he should, that should he ever get Alzheimer's or some similar disease, this would be the last memory to leave him. He remembered trembling while waiting for his father to respond. His father didn't turn to him, but sat, still sat holding the newspaper wide before him. He then slowly reached his left hand to the top corner of the right-hand page and turned it to continue reading. And then he said it, the sentence Lou would never forget. He said, well... I guess you'll have to take the truck then. <laughs> How many of us would have jumped out of our chair yelling and screaming and condemning and grounding and beating up this person who had felt so bad for what he already had done? I would have. But the more I look on Jesus, the old picture was up there. The more I look at that, the more I'm tempted to just turn the newspaper and say, guess you'll have to take the other car. Was that car that vital? Was it more important than the person? No. You see, according to what the anatomy of peace talks about is, when you and I get into our struggles and you and I get into our problems, we tend to start seeing people as objects rather than as people. 
My wife and I were driving home in the same car, I think on Thursday after school, and she asked me a question about somebody who had texted because we're trying to help some people get free of a really bad situation. And so um, she asked because we had a connection in a different city and we're trying to get all that work done. And she asked if I had responded to that text yet. And I said, I got it, I just haven't responded yet. And she said something, and I don't remember even what it was about responding or whatever. And I got frustrated because I'll do it in my own time. I don't need you to tell me, I don't need you to control me, I don't need you to tell me what to do. I'm such a good husband. (laughs) So, then instantly she knew something was wrong. And do you know, at that moment, even after she said she was sorry for trying to control me, and that I could do it in my own time, even after that, my ability to look up and look her in the face went away. And I stayed in my anger for a while. Because she had lost her identity as a person. She's great. I'm the mess, okay? Now, got a question for you. Who won't you look in the eye because they're no longer a person, they're just an object? Who won't you reconcile with because they're just an object? They're a pain in the butt and you've got it worked out in your life that they have to remain a pain in the butt for you to feel like you want to feel justified in your anger, justified in your righteousness. That's not us, is it? It's just your pastor who's a mess. By the way, when I got my head screwed on straight, which takes a long time, because it's kind of, you know, screw, 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 got it on, okay? I was like, oh, by the way, I messed up, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this is what I see you were trying to do to help me, a procrastinator, to get things done. Thank you. I married well. I wonder what would happen if we let the people in our lives with whom we are angry and struggling, I wonder what would happen if we began to see them as sinner saints, as fellow strugglers. What would happen? For me, life got a lot better when I let her be a fellow struggler and saw the good she was trying to work through that. Now, that's not always the case. We oftentimes have people that are evil who are doing evil things to us, doing wrong things to us. Okay? So how do we work then to reconcile those things? How do we work then to to bridge the gap? And for that I want to read just a little section of something called Bridging the Gap or How to Deal with Difficult Relationships. It goes like this. Do you know the pain of a broken relationship? The kind of pain filled with broken promises. The kind of betrayal that penetrates the very core of your being. The cords of trust have been completely severed so that the chasm seemingly can no longer be crossed. You want to close the gap like Pat and I had this morning. But conflict continually keeps you apart. If only you could find a way to bridge the gap. As I recently look back over the years at my own challenging relationships, I reflected on my attempts to bridge the gap. Some failed, some didn't. I also learned a bit about bridges. I mean, literal bridges. 
Deep in the jungles of India, in one of the world's wettest regions, indigenous people have been cultivating living bridges for more than 500 years. Planning 10 to 15 years in advance, members of the War Kahas tribe decide where a bridge will be most useful. Then they begin the painstaking work of directing strong, resilient rubber tree roots to arch from one bank to another. To start a new bridge, the tribe's people use native bamboo-like vegetation to guide the direction of the, tr- of the roots to grow straight across, not down. It is also used to prevent the rubber tree roots from fanning out so that they create a tight, secure structure. After the roots have passed over the water, the people help the roots lodge themselves deep in the soil on the other side. Given enough time, a sturdy living bridge takes hold and finds its shape. The more mature these bridges become, the more weight they can bear, with some spanning more than 100 feet and able to support 50 people crossing at once. A question we could all ask ourselves is this, am I a bridge builder, one who is firmly rooted and reaching out to reconcile with others? If not, we are missing a major purpose in our lives. Jesus has bridged the chasm with the cross to reconcile us. We are so good with God the Father. Right? Right? We are so good with God the Father. We are righteous in his eyes because of Jesus. And now he says, I've got major work for you to do, and it's hard work. I need you to get those roots going across. How many times have I thought, well, if I tried once to reconcile with Don, it didn't work. I guess I'm done. I did my duty. Right? That's how I do it. Because I is lazy. But the more I live in the joy of Jesus, the more I say, you know what, Don's worth it. I wonder what I should do. What would it matter if it took 10 years to reconcile? Because God's not simply satisfied with us saying, I forgive you, I just don't want to have anything to do with you ever again. Not that anyone here has ever said those words. How does this all happen? Will you take the time to reflect with me on this kind of God? Your God who would do anything to get you back. To restore us. And to give us a life of meaning and purpose. And even though it doesn't look like it right now in my face, enjoy. Amen.